0: If you would, please open your Bibles to John chapter 3. Uh, that is where I have been the last couple times that I have preached, but we will be looking at a different passage in here today, starting in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. And today we'll close out this chapter, um, and really it closes out um, a section of this opening portion of John's gospel um, that details the start of Jesus' in Galilee and Judea, This passage that we'll look at today starts off with a focus on John the Baptist, and we'll spend some time looking at him and the significance of this in John's gospel. But it quickly becomes clear that John the gospel writer, as with the rest of his gospel, intends us not to see John the Baptist, but to see Jesus in this. I will remind you, as I've done every time in John's Gospel, of the purpose of his Gospel, because it's so critical to understanding everything he writes. And that's found at the end of his book in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, as we've done with the rest of this gospel, I want to ensure that we keep this purpose before us as we work through this passage today. John wants to show us fundamentally who Jesus is in this passage. So, let's begin today by reading through this and follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 22 of John chapter 3. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. John the Baptist is a very familiar figure in the gospel accounts to most people. We first hear of him chronologically in Luke's gospel, where an angel appears to his father Zechariah, who is a priest serving in the temple, and tells him about the son that he would have in his old age. The angel speaks of the son in this way. This is in Luke chapter 1, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. Much of that declaration of the angel is taken almost verbatim from passages in Isaiah predicting the coming of this one before the Messiah. This declaration to Zechariah is very significant because it comes on the heels of 400 years of prophetic silence from God. There had been no active prophet speaking the words of God in Israel for this time period. That is not to say that God was not active. Uh, because he was very active, if you read the history of that time, in working um, among his people and in this region in various ways. And there's much fulfillment of prophecy that happens in this time from earlier prophets. But there's no new prophetic voice that is proclaiming the words of God in this time period since Malachi. Matthew and Mark point to John the Baptist Um, as the fulfillment of what was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A prophecy that is very closely linked to the prophecies about the suffering servant, the Messiah, who would come. Thus, it's very difficult to overstate the significance of this announcement to Zechariah. Not only was this prophetic silence being broken... But it was also an indication that the long-promised Messiah was soon to arrive, and John was going to be his forerunner. John himself was a very unique individual. Um, Luke's account indicates that he would be a Nazarite from birth. That's the comment about no wine or strong drink that indicates a Nazarite vow. And typically that was a vow that someone would take to dedicate themselves to God, but he's indicating that John would be this from birth, that his entire life would be dedicated to this uh, from the very beginning. Um, It also means that he would not cut his hair so he would have very long hair uh, and it's often viewed as him having a very wild appearance which is probably very true. He had a unique style all his own as it's described. He is clothed with camel's hair and he wears a leather belt around his waist. So well, that style is not actually entirely his own. The other one in scripture who is described in this way is Elijah, and it was such a distinguishing outfit being clothed in hair with a leather belt around his waist that that description alone was enough for someone to recognize him, for the king to know exactly who someone was talking about. And that's very intentional because John is the one who comes, as it's said, in the spirit and power of Elijah. He eats locusts and wild honey, we are told, and spends most of his time in the wilderness outside the city centers, outside the populated centers, and the people came to him. Perhaps most significantly is his anointing. He is described there as being filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Before he is born, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. He is anointed with the Spirit. The Spirit was given in various measures to priests and prophets and kings throughout the Old Testament, but there's no one spoken of in that way as John is. No one was filled with the Spirit from birth as John was. He was a very significant and unique prophet in that way. He, of course, causes an enormous stir in Judea. Um, He confounded the authorities. He called everyone from all walks of life to repentance. He confronted the authorities in many cases and refused to back down even when death was on the line. In fact, that sounds very familiar to the story of Jesus himself. And he served very much as a forerunner of Jesus. Jesus, in describing him, actually called John the Baptist the greatest man that ever lived. In Matthew 11, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. To that time, John the Baptist was declared by Jesus to be the greatest man that ever lived. This is the greatest man, the greatest prophet in Israel's history, and yet what we see here in John chapter 3 is John the Baptist's recognition and his complete submission to someone who is greater than him. As significant a figure as he is in Israel's history, as the culmination of millennia of promises and anxious waiting, he knows that his ultimate purpose is simply to pave the way for the one who comes after him. And it is that humble willingness to the plan God has for him, even if it means stepping aside at the height of his preaching ministry, that truly sets him apart and truly makes him the great man that he is. So let's start in verse 22 of John chapter three to help set the stage for this story. Jesus and his disciples leave Jerusalem at some point after the meeting with Nicodemus. Um, the time, time period here and duration isn't totally clear in John's Gospel. Given the stir that he created in Jerusalem as he was uh, at the Passover, he clears the temple and then is performing many signs among the people in Jerusalem, uh, and people are getting amazed. Crowds are undoubtedly already beginning to follow him, and so they follow him now into the Judean countryside, as it said. He begins having his disciples baptize these people in the same way that John did, calling them to repentance and baptizing them as a purification rite. This is not the baptism that we think of as a baptism of salvation that had not been instituted. It's the same kind of thing that John the Baptist was doing, this preparatory baptism. Baptism wasn't a normal or regular practice of Jewish life in general. Um, There were some groups that did it um, as a regular cleansing rite. But it was something most significantly that proselytes, those who had converted to Judaism, would sometimes do upon their conversion as a symbolic act to cleanse themselves completely, a full cleansing, um, removing all of the uncleanness that they had as Gentiles and signifying their becoming part of the people of God. John's baptism honestly serves a very similar purpose, and the baptism that Jesus' disciples are, are doing is the same kind of baptism. It essentially, essentially functioned as a rededication and a recommitment of the people of God to the covenant that God had given them, specifically in preparation for the coming of the Messiah, and ultimately the establishment of the new covenant that he would bring. It was a symbol for the people of Israel to say, yes, we are the people of God and we want to dedicate ourselves to follow God so that they were ready for the Messiah who would come. John was also still baptizing at this point, and the respective ministries of John and Jesus seemed to coexist for a time at least. It wouldn't last terribly long because John was arrested shortly after Jesus' public ministry starts, as we learn in the Synoptic Gospels. Once Jesus returns north to Galilee, which in John's gospel happens at the end of chapter 4, John is arrested and his ministry is over. But for now, they coexist and are ministering side by side in different places, but performing the same function. As we go down to verse 25, we see that some of John's disciples have an argument with a Jew. No doubt this Jew is a leader of some kind, most likely a Pharisee or a priest, or someone who, is, who has dealt with John before in the past. And this is, it says that it is of over-purification. Fundamentally, this is a di- discussion about this baptism that's being offered. This actually isn't the first time that we've seen John's disciples, or John himself, for that matter, in this Gospel. In fact, the very first evidence for Jesus that John, the writer of this Gospel, gives as he concludes his prologue, is the testimony of John the Baptist as the forerunner of Jesus. He declares to the Jewish leaders that he himself is not the Christ, he is not Elijah, he is not the prophet that Moses had promised. Instead, he does promise that there is one coming who is far greater than he, and as he says, the strap of whose sandal he is not worthy to untie. Go back to John chapter 1 here and pick up in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. I spoke of the purpose of John's baptism, but here John himself makes it clear that the primary purpose for why he baptized was so that Jesus could be revealed. John knew that he would baptize the Christ, but he didn't know who that one would be until it happened. Incidentally, John is actually related to Jesus. Mary and Elizabeth were cousins, it is said, of some variety. And so John and Jesus undoubtedly knew each other prior to this. uh, But he was not known to be the Christ until this event. When John baptizes him and sees the Spirit descending upon him, hears the voice from heaven and knows that this is the one that he has been preparing for. Now, John, of course, had his own disciples that followed him, as we see in chapter 3, but also back in chapter 1. And it's those disciples that are actually the first ones to follow Jesus. In verse 35 of chapter 1, it says, The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. One of those disciples is identified as Andrew, Peter's brother. The other isn't identified, but is generally assumed to be John, the gospel writer himself, as an eyewitness to both John the Baptist and Jesus in their ministries. Notice what happens there with those first two disciples, though. John declares Jesus to be the Lamb of God, directing that comment explicitly to and about him. The disciples see and hear this and they've seen John's previous statements and heard his testimony so they know that John is saying this is the one that his entire ministry has been pointing towards this is the Christ and so they leave why wouldn't they this is the one that John has been talking about for their entire time with him the one who is greater than he the Messiah himself if they follow and believe John the only reasonable response is to follow after Jesus as the one that John has been promising. But not all John's disciples followed this pattern. Perhaps these disciples in chapter 3 come later. Perhaps they never witnessed the baptism in direct acknowledgement of Jesus specifically by John. As you can read later in Scripture, in Acts chapter 19, Paul actually comes across a group of, of uh, John's disciples. Who had been baptized into John's baptism, but don't have an understanding of Jesus as the Messiah, and Paul corrects that thinking among them. Whatever the reason is for these disciples to still be following Jesus, they are still loyal followers of John. Excuse me. And they have this dispute with the Jewish leader. They likely leave that interaction wondering about the future of their master's ministry. What is what is John's? ministry look like going forward, particularly in light of the rising popularity of Jesus. Jesus is likely causing an even bigger stir than John the Baptist is. John the Baptist is out preaching in the wilderness and crowds are flocking to him. Jesus is performing signs and wonders in Jerusalem and speaking as one with great authority And so the crowds following him are even greater than they were for John. These disciples appear to have largely missed the purpose of John's ministry, especially since they've chosen to continue to follow him rather than following Jesus. And there appears that there may be some resentment for the rise of Jesus in their response, since the crowds are now flocking to him, and flocking to him for the same reason that they originally flocked to John. But what we see in John's response to them is a beautiful affirmation of the purpose that God had given to him, a submission that we see to that purpose and plan, and a willingness to see his own star fade as Jesus' star begins to shine. And viewing that as absolutely not only necessary, but the best thing that could happen. want to look at four things as we look at John's reply first. First, he acknowledges that neither him he himself or Jesus himself are the force behind their earthly success. Verse 27, he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John is speaking generally here about the way things work. And that is to acknowledge that all things are bestowed from heaven. It's a declaration of the sovereign power of God in accomplishing anything on this earth. John is saying, I didn't do this. It is God that has done this. And in the same way, God is empowering what Jesus is doing. Neither of us is the star in this. It is God who is the star. John didn't have the idea to become a prophet on his own. As we've seen, that was ordained by God before his conception even for the purpose of being the forerunner of Christ. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit from before his birth. He had no role in becoming a prophet. God chose and made him one. So John understands that anything he has accomplished is only because God has given it to him to accomplish And thus God gets the credit for it, not John. Second, see that John knows what his mission is. He is not the Christ. He was sent before the Christ. Which means that by design, once the Christ has come, John's ministry must naturally fade away. Its purpose has been served. There is no need once Jesus has come. Once Jesus' ministry has begun, once he has been revealed, John's time and purpose has been fulfilled. John clearly knows what his God-ordained prophetic purpose was and knows that it was always intended to be a temporary ministry. That's why he says in verse 28, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. As a way of explanation to his disciples, saying, You've heard me say this. Third, John finds joy in the fulfillment of his purpose. He knows that purpose is fulfilled. He knows his time is done. But he finds joy in that. He rejoices at that fact. Jesus the Christ has come. The mission, the message, the purpose of John's prophetic ministry are thus fulfilled. Yes, that means that John's time in the spotlight is over. And indeed, John is very soon to be arrested and will ultimately be beheaded. He will fade out of the light of Israel as Jesus comes to prominence. But John does not lament that fact. John is not sad over that course of events that is going to play out. He rejoices in seeing the end of his ministry because he knows what that end means. It means that the Christ The Messiah has come, the bridegroom of the bride of Israel that God has promised. The wedding imagery he uses here has Israel's the bride, Jesus as the bridegroom. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, he says. Israel belongs to Jesus, belongs to the Christ. And John is just the friend of the bridegroom. The wedding is not about the friend. He may have been involved greatly in the planning and preparation for the wedding day, but now that the day has come, the day of consummation when God's long-promised Messiah finally has arrived, John rejoices that his preparation work is done. This joy of mine is now complete. He he does not lament his change in status. He is not sad over the course of events. He is joyful to see what has come to pass. And finally, in his response, probably the most famous part of this passage, he must increase, but I must decrease. In order for Jesus to fulfill his purpose and truly begin his ministry, it was necessary that John fade into the background. There was to be no competition between John and Jesus, as his disciples seem to see. John's ministry ultimately wasn't about bringing people to him. It was always about bringing people to Jesus. And now that he's here, John knows that his popularity, his influence, his fame must fade away so that Jesus can become the focus instead. That is the right thing to have happen. John knows his purpose. He knows why he has done all that he has done. He joyfully then passes the torch and he elevates the one to whom he was pointing everyone who came to him. And so ultimately, Jesus receives any glory that's directed at John the Baptist. So John, in this response, assures his disciples that all is exactly as it should be. There's no cause for despair, or worry, or jealousy, or resentment. There is instead a cause for rejoicing. Why? Why is this cause for rejoicing? Because John was merely the final step, the final link in a chain of prophets millennia long that has finally found its culmination and its consummation in the revealing of the Messiah, the promised one, the son of God, the very word of God, Jesus himself. So what do we take away from this picture of John? Well, let me ask this question. What would your response be to this? We deal with situations of competitiveness in life all the time, uh, particularly in our Western society. Granted, none of us are commissioned prophets speaking directly for God, but we are all ministers in some capacity. Are we content, as John is, with the platform that God has given us? Whether that's among our family, among our coworkers, whether it's a more formal ministry? Or do we look with envy to the one who has more success? Expanding that out, what's our response when we see the gospel preaching church down the road or across town or across the country that's exploding in size and influence? Do we get jealous? Do we get envious? Do we get resentful? Do we hunt for any sign of imperfection that we can find to try to lessen the significance of what we see? I preach to myself in this as well. This is a trap that the world pulls us all into and one we we must guard ourselves from. We are self-protective by nature and self-elevating by nature. Whereas what God calls us to is the same response that John has. He must increase, I must decrease. We rejoice in seeing what God is doing, even if, it's, even if he's not doing it in and through us. Looking at different contexts, if we're passed over for a promotion at work, or someone else gets an award in our school that we were up for, or a prize in sports or in music, And that person is equally qualified, also deserving of it. What is our response? Perhaps even closer to home for many of us, for me personally, for sure. When we're bearing the weight of difficult circumstances, how do we respond to those around us who are not? Are we able to rejoice with those who rejoice? Even when that doesn't make sense? Can someone fighting a losing battle with cancer rejoice with their brother and sister that has just been declared cancer-free? Can a couple battling with the overwhelming pain of infertility rejoice with the ones who are blessed with their first child? Those are not easy things to do, but it's what God calls us to do as his people. I know that these and other circumstances aren't hypotheticals for many of us, My intent is to not have you walking away feeling guilt and shame if these describe your circumstances. Quite frankly, I've convicted myself in preparing this sermon in many ways. The reality of this is that we are commanded to this. Romans 12, Paul, getting to the end of his letter, um, has an incredible turning point at the beginning of chapter 12 and then goes on to list a long series of commands, things that we as God's people are commanded to do, things that we are to do to live as God's people. And among those is a short verse with two simple statements. Romans twelve fifteen. rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. For me personally, at least, it's easier to do the latter than the former sometimes. But the first half of that verse is equally important and equally valid. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice, even when it is, even when we're in circumstances that don't lead us to rejoice, and even when we're seeing something that we wish we had. The example of John the Baptist here can be a convicting one. Here's someone who's been in the limelight at the height of his success, both in worldly and heavenly terms, quite honestly, but who is now being supplanted. What we see in him and in his response is the supreme picture of what it means to rejoice with those who rejoice. His joy is made full in seeing the people turn away from him and turn to Jesus. And he knows what that means for him. This isn't a reluctant rejoicing from John. He says, my joy is now complete. John is genuinely thrilled to see that Jesus has come and that his time is now done, regardless of what that means for him personally. And remember, he is soon to be arrested and a few years down the road will be killed. As John the Gospel writer continues in chapter three, this latter portion here, I believe, is another aside from him. Um, There's some who hold that that this is all John the Baptist, a quote from John the Baptist. Um, As earlier in chapter three, I believe this is John the Gospel writer expanding on what John the Baptist has said. Once again here, the language used points to John the writer as the speaker. And the understanding reflected in these verses of who Jesus truly is is something that wouldn't have been fully understood by anyone, not even John the Baptist, and not even his disciples, until after the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit. In fact, John the Baptist, we're told in the synoptics, even had his own doubts at one point, as he was in prison. He sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? There's a long discussion that could be had about why that is, but most likely the expectation of the Messiah King, that influenced so much of Israel at this time, was influencing his thoughts as well. And who Jesus was revealing himself to be in his ministry was difficult to reconcile with that expectation of the conquering Messiah King. But John the writer understands as he writes his gospel, he understands this overriding purpose To show that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and all that is meant by that. So he uses John the Baptist's understanding and his explanation to launch into a bigger declaration of who Jesus truly is. That's what we need to see. That's what John the writer wants us to see coming out of John the Baptist's statements. And again, there are four things I want to highlight from these last few verses in chapter three. First, there is none who is greater than Jesus. Jesus declared John the Baptist to be the greatest man who had lived to that point. The reality that John the writer says here is that Jesus is greater than John. He is above all by nature of being from above. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who comes from heaven is above all. John the Baptist may have been the greatest man that had ever lived to that point, but Jesus was greater. John was limited by his earthly flesh. He was still a man, despite all of the blessings that God gave him to perform his ministry. Hence why, despite all that he clearly knew to be true about his ministry, about who Jesus was, he still struggled to understand fully the completeness of who Jesus was. He could call people to baptism and repentance, but he couldn't reveal heaven's counsel. He couldn't bring the true new birth of water and spirit that we've looked, for, looked at before in chapter three, the re- regeneration that can only come from above. But even with that imperfect understanding, with his earthly limitations, he recognized in Jesus one far greater than himself. Jesus wasn't just a man. He wasn't just earthly. He was also God, from heaven, from above. He is the God-man, fully God, and perfect man in one. There is none greater than he. Second, Jesus speaks with authority, as a first-hand giver of knowledge. John's message was necessarily imparted from God. God gave his message to John, and John spoke that message. He is a mouthpiece for God. There's a subtle difference, but an important one with Jesus. Jesus speaks directly from what he has seen and heard. He is the word of God himself. He is the fullest revelation of God to man. He reveals most fully who God is and how his people are to relate to him. As John says, he utters the words of God. And God has given all things into his hand. He is the one to whom God gives the Spirit without measure. As I said earlier, John the Baptist and every other prophet and king before him were given a measure of the Spirit according to their need in order to accomplish their purpose. And certainly, John the Baptist probably was the fullest measure that had been given to anyone to that point. But Jesus is given the Spirit, it is said, without measure. The fullness of the Spirit is on Jesus, in him, and with him, just as Isaiah had prophesied. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42 speak of the Spirit being given to this one who is to come. And so he speaks as one with authority. It's very rare you see Jesus say, thus says the Lord. He says, I say. John the Baptist speaks, For God, Jesus speaks as God. His authority comes from himself. He speaks his own words because they are what he knows and he is the source of them. They are the very words of God. Therefore, because his words are the words of God, thirdly, to believe Jesus' words is to believe the word of God. Despite his voice of authority, or perhaps, or perhaps in some cases because of it, John says that no one receives his testimony. Of course, John there is using hyperbole to indicate the truth illustrated by the vast majority of his gospel, that by and large the Jewish people do not believe what Jesus has said. They do not receive his testimony. They may follow him in large crowds, to see what he does and respond to the miracles that he performs, but time and again when he speaks, when he reveals who he is and who God is and what God demands of his people, the crowds drift away. John makes it clear that to believe or reject Jesus' testimony is the same as believing or rejecting God. If you reject Jesus, you call God a liar. Jesus speaks the very words of God, and believing that word declares that God is true. It declares that Jesus is precisely who he claims to be, that he is the Son of God, that he is the promised Messiah, that he is God himself, and that God is most fully and perfectly revealed in him. And finally, to believe in Jesus is to obey him. Belief and obedience go hand in hand. Look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Once again, John here connects belief to eternal life, something we've seen earlier in this chapter and in previous sermons. It's a common thread throughout chapter 3, and it's all tied to this overriding purpose in writing his gospel. That you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing, you would have life in his name. This eternal life, as we've seen before, is tied to the promise of the kingdom. And it's something that's not just part of eternity or heaven, but it's an experience that begins in this life. However, whereas previously in verse 18 he speaks of belief and unbelief, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, here he uses a different term. He equates not believing with not obeying. The word of Jesus, the word of God that comes through him makes demands of its hearers. It demands a response. Every time Jesus speaks, he demands a response. And you see that, especially in John's gospel, where where he captures so many of the responses. And as Jesus continues to speak, the people continually reject him more and more as the gospel proceeds The word of Jesus makes demands of it here, it demands this response. And there's a humility, there is a submission, there is a recognition of the authority and the greatness of Jesus that is a necessary part of belief in him. And thus obedience is linked to that belief. In believing, we are submitting ourselves to a new master. As Paul says, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we have been freed from that slavery, and we have now placed ourselves willingly under a new and better master. That is the obedience of belief. To not believe is to disobey what God has said. And once again, we see the truth that we've seen before, again, back in verse 18. Where he says that those who don't believe are condemned already. And here in 36, he says, the wrath of God remains on them. Again, another reminder that Jesus did not come to a neutral world. The fate of this world, the fate of each individual in this world, is not unknown before you respond. Jesus. It is not determined by that response in Jesus. It isn't purely the rejection of Jesus that brings condemnation and wrath. That condemnation and wrath was already present. That is the fate that awaits anyone and everyone, all of humanity, because of our sin against God. What is found in Jesus and what John desperately wants us to see in this chapter more than any other is the remedy, the means of escape from that fate. That's why he writes what he does. That's why he writes in the way he does. To believe that, to accept that takes humility. As we saw this morning, John the Baptist is an excellent picture of that. His response is one of humility. He was a great man, but he was a humble man. He did not view himself as the main thing. He knew that there was someone greater than him. He knew that his purpose was very specific. And once it was accomplished, he was more than willing to lay that aside. John the Baptist is one of the primary testimonies that John the Gospel writer will later highlight that points to the authenticity of Christ. John acknowledged and understood his role. He submitted himself to a purpose and he submitted himself to a person that was far greater than he was. And that is the call of John's Gospel to us. Our natural desire is to seek our own glory. Our natural tendency is to trust our own authority and make ourselves the greatest being within our worlds. But Jesus stands before us as one far greater than us. We have the greatest man in history, John the Baptist, pointing to him and saying he is greater than me. Jesus is far greater than us. He speaks with a far greater authority than we can ever have. And he bids us to come and submit ourselves to him and his words. To believe in him. If we do that, the promise is that all who believe will have eternal life. It's not a life of ease or a life that is free from trouble. It is An experience of abundant life that begins now, that can only come from the wellspring of the riches of God's love and grace as he pours out his Spirit upon all those who are his. John's conclusion here in chapter 3 brings together all of what we've seen in this chapter. He hearkens back to the belief leading to eternal life, ties all of this back to the idea of the new birth. Being born of water and the Spirit, that promised transformation that God made way back in Ezekiel, where he promises a new covenant for his people, that he will make them into the people that he desires them to be and that they have continually failed to be. God invites all of us to join in that. That is what he calls us to, that is what he desires for his creation is for us to become the people that he has always desired his creation to be. For those who have believed, let us rejoice in what he is doing in us personally and what you see him doing in your brothers and sisters around you as he continually remakes us, as he continually regenerates all of us, bringing us ever closer into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth that we find in your word here this morning. Thank you for the continued message of John. Thank you for the declaration of who Jesus is that we see here. Thank you that there is someone far greater than us. And thank you that for those who believe, you have helped us to see that. You have broken through the veneer of sin that coats everything about us. And that sits at the core of our being. You have opened our eyes. You have helped us to see. And you have given us a new heart. Taken away that heart of stone, given us a heart of flesh, one that is capable of seeing and understanding and loving you. Thank you, God, that you did not leave us in our state. Thank you that you did not leave us as those who had the wrath of God remaining on us, that you did not leave us as those who are condemned already. But you sent a remedy. You sent your son, you sent Jesus, the one who is from heaven, the one who is from above, the one who speaks from his own authority. Father, as we live out this new life that you have created within us, help us to live a life of humility. Help us to accept the circumstances that you give to us. Father, help us to rejoice in the circumstances that you give to us. Help us to find contentment in whatever it is that you have placed in our path and in our life for the purpose of molding us into the image of Christ. And help us to look around and share life with the people around us, with our brothers and sisters in this congregation. Help us to look around and share that life with them and rejoice with them. Help us to rejoice with our brothers and sisters when they rejoice and help us to weep with those who weep. Bind us together as your people and give us hearts that desire to live out lives as the people of God. We ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.